0: Ew, it's a bottleneck back there. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for today. Thank you for what today represents. For some, it's, it's coming back to church and uh, getting back into a routine of coming regularly and worshiping you and learning more of your word and getting that um, spiritual jolt uh, to be able to uh, get through each week Uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit. For others, it's a reminder that this world is not our home, and we have another homecoming to look forward to, and that is when we reunite with you, and we get to be with you for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals so much to us about who you are and what your plan is for us and for this world. May we uh, listen to it and obey it, hinge our lives on it, make it our foundation. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. About six years ago, a website run by a private public safety company published a page that depicted several strange and therefore often humorous real life situations that police officers have had to deal with. Here are just a few. Grand Rapids resident told police last week that someone had entered his home during the night and taken five pounds of bacon from the refrigerator. Upon further investigation police discovered his wife had gotten up for a late-night snack but was afraid to admit it. (laughs) Five pounds of bacon and I mean that sounds like a good snack to me. Uh, But I want to know what the conversation that went on between these two after the police left. To be fair, here's the flip side of spouses calling the police on each other. At 8.29 p.m., police received a call from a Dubois woman who said she smelled something funny in her room last night. She believed that it might be her husband. (laughs) Wives don't get any ideas with that one. Police checked the area and found an open door in the back of the building. An officer went inside and called out, Marco. The man's name was not Marco, Detective Tim Dorr said. Instead, the officer was trying to inject some humor into the situation. Police found the suspect after he responded, Polo. (laughs) I'm sure the guy couldn't help responding that way. I don't think I could help keep myself from responding that way. And lastly... 1.33 p.m. Sonora, a man came to the sheriff's department to find out how to legally kill a person who was harassing him. I mean, how do you even respond to that? As a police officer, how would you respond to that? No doubt many police officers have to deal with strange situations and people whose responses are not what they were expecting. In our passage this morning, the authorities of the temple approached Jesus... Following the spectacle, that was him throwing the money changers' tables and driving out everyone, including all the sacrificial animals, with a homemade whip. But I'm sure that they were definitely not expecting what he responded with. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 2, verse 13. I want all of us to see this. Or you can look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smart smartphone. What I want to do is just give a bit of review. And you can start. You can skim through this as I review. For anyone who missed last week's message, because it's all connected. I want all of us to be on the same page as we dive into our passes this morning. What happened last week is what directly precipitates what we're talking about today. Last week, we talked about, you know, you don't... Think of Jesus in this way, do you? Uh, Last week, we talked about the incident for the first time, that Jesus enters the temple and drives out the money changers, those selling sacrificial animals, and all those animals with a homemade whip and shouts, you will not make my father's house a place of business. Now, why did Jesus do any of this? This wasn't Jesus going off the deep end, and this wasn't Jesus sinning by letting the anger get the best of him. What was really going on here? Like we talked about last week, what had been established in God's temple by the rabbinical authorities for about 150 years by the time Jesus shows up here is that there was only one type of currency accepted for the temple tax. Every male, 20 years and older, had to pay an annual temple tax to help upkeep the temple. Along the way, the rabbis made it so that the only acceptable form of currency was known as the Tyrian shekel and what that was was a piece of silver that originally had been minted in the Phoenician city of Tyre and included an image of a Phoenician god on it this flew right in the face of and was a blatant breaking of the first of the ten commandments right you shall have no other gods before me And yet this was the only coin accepted by the rabbinical authorities at God's holy temple, as it was the most valuable coin at the time. The rabbis cared way more about the most bang for their buck when it came to people's taxes than caring about following God's commandments. What made matters worse is that when Herod's temple was completed, this very same time, uh, at this very same temple that Jesus is at, the Romans closed the mint entire, but allowed the rabbis to continue minting this coin, provided they keep this pagan god's image on the coin. So the rabbis ended up moving the mint for this pagan embossed coin right into the heart of Jerusalem to continue perpetuating this practice. Since this mint was the only one producing these coins and the only purpose of these coins was for every male 20 years and older to pay the temple tax or to buy sacrificial animals, this wasn't the type of currency that everybody just carried in their pockets. That everyday currency was the normal Greek and Roman currencies. So what people had to do was take their Greek and Roman currencies and exchange them for these Tyrian shekels for use at the temple. Those who would exchange these currencies, hired by the temple authorities, would then charge an exorbitant exchange rate just for people to be able to follow the Jewish law. It was a very definition of racketeering. You look up the definition of what racketeering is online, that's it right here. And those most victimized by this temple-run practice, the poor. Lastly, this act of money exchange and animal selling was taking place in the court of Gentiles and disrupting the Gentiles' worship of God in the temple. So... Now that it was time for Jesus to start revealing himself as the Messiah and God, it was now time for him to do something about this practice of blatantly breaking the first of the Ten Commandments, exploitation of people made in God's image, and the disruption of his worship. Since Jesus was now acting as the representative of God on Earth, this act of Jesus driving everyone out in such a powerful way was a symbolic act of God's judgment the sinful practice by those who were supposed to be the religious authorities of his chosen people. In a way, it's a similar act to any number of times God punished and judged his people for their blatant and unrepentant disobedience of his commands. With all the animals driven out of the temple and now wandering around the streets of Jerusalem, the temple worship was obviously shut down for the day. Everything was in an uproar. And obviously, word would have gotten to the religious authorities that it was all the fault of this dude from Nazareth named Jesus, the son of Joseph. Naturally, their immediate response would be to approach Jesus and demand to know what in the world he was doing and why he thought he had the right to do it. And like we opened up our time with in this message, I'm 100% sure that Jesus' response was the last thing they expected him to respond with. So let's pick up with verses 18 through 19 in John chapter 2. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And this is Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That is not the response the authorities were expecting. When this references the Jews, this isn't referring to a random group of Jewish people who are just hanging around the temple. John uses this term here to refer to the Jewish religious authorities. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this was the very first time Jesus has a run-in with the Jewish religious authorities, and as we well know, it certainly won't be the last. This is the very first time Jesus challenges what they've done with God's law, how they've justified different additions, and justified not following it. It marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Remember from last week how we talked about how Jesus' brothers didn't believe him as the Messiah until some did only after he rose from the dead. All this time, at the beginning of his ministry, which we're at, they only want to be seen around Jesus because he was doing cool miracles and they could see the potential of him becoming famous. But they, along with a lot of other people, are going to disagree with and start to distance themselves from Jesus because he starts challenging the status quo and what the religious authorities had established for a long time. That's quite unpopular. It's one thing to want to be associated with someone when they're doing a bunch of cool magic tricks. It's quite another when what they're doing could also get you thrown in prison from just having a simple association with them. Jesus is faced with a dilemma with the question that the religious authorities demand of him. If he simply answers their question of by whose authority he thought he had to do what he had done, he would be recognizing the religious authorities as having authority over him. If he didn't answer at all, he would be acting as if he had done something wrong or had had a momentary lapse of judgment or had just acted out of craziness. So what Jesus does ingeniously, as he often did with the religious authorities who antagonistically challenged him, is that he redirects the focus onto what he knows is most important and what everyone else should be focused on. So instead of simply answering this antagonistic question, Jesus responds with what is ultimately way more important than him giving his credentials. He gives a veiled reference to his coming death and resurrection and this is actually this is actually really huge right here this is the very first time in john's gospel that jesus makes any sort of reference to his death and resurrection we're going to come back right back to this in a second the religious authorities, so entrenched in their way of thinking and doing things based on human interpretation of God's law and their justification of certain things that disobeyed it, even within God's holy temple, could only think in those terms. That's the only way they could process through anything. They couldn't see anything based on how they already interpreted the world and God's law. So they respond with verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? The first temple was built by King Solomon hundreds of years before this and was constructed to be as grandiose and extravagant as humanly possible, even trucking in construction materials from all over the ancient Mediterranean world. When it was completed, it was one of the wonders of the world, with people coming from all over the the ancient Mediterranean world to gaze upon its glory. This temple existed, fell into disrepair, and then was repaired throughout hundreds of more years of good kings and bad kings over Israel, by far mostly bad kings who wanted nothing to do with the temple. In fact, Israel kept disobeying God for so long That God disciplined her by sending her into exile in Babylon. It's during this time of Babylonian exile that the concept of the synagogue or local places of Jewish worship arose. Which is still, as we know, the primary physical place of Jewish worship today. Different synagogues in different cities. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and carted away its inhabitants, they also destroyed Solomon's glorious temple. When the Jewish people were finally allowed to return to Judah and Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast. But the people wept, for it was nowhere near the glorious temple that, was, that they once had. That very modest temple was known as the second temple. A period of about 400 years takes place after that in between the close of the Old Testament and the events of the New Testament, most of which is not recorded in the Bible. However, we can know what happened from other historical writings. The Greeks, under Alexander the Great, conquered the area, and then the Romans. The Romans set up a puppet king named Herod the Great, or King Herod, portrayed in Christmas plays, who decided to completely overhaul this second temple by doubling the size of the temple mount and rebuilding everything. Now when you look up the construction dates for Herod's temple overhaul, he started roughly in 20 to 25 B.C. and completed it in 10 B.C. Why is this important? How long does John record the authorities say it took Herod to build this temple in verse 20? 46 years. Simple math tells us that it really only took about 10 to 15 years to complete the overhaul. So what gives? Does John record this seemingly huge discrepancy? Can the Bible not be trusted in simple facts? No, we can trust it. A better translation into the English of what John records in verse 20 is pointed out by one biblical scholar is this. This temple has been built for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days. This makes complete sense If if we take Jesus' birth year at about 5 B.C. and the start of his ministry at age 30, that would mark this at about 25 A.D. Subtract another 20 to 25 years before, which would total 45 to 50 years. And this lines right up with the better translation that at that moment during this conversation, the temple started to be built and thus had been built for 46 years by this point. I know that was a little dry, but I wanted to point out the Bible's integrity in light of recorded human history, even when it doesn't seem like it. In fact, any and every seeming contradiction critics of the Bible like to bring up and throw in our faces. If you do some digging, you can always, always, always find a logical explanation for why the Bible is still true. Don't ever get caught up in the criticism that the Bible contradicts itself, because that's never true the case. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't have this physical temple that they're standing in in mind with his answer. We get that in verses 21 through 22. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. What crucial truth is about his death and resurrection was Jesus revealing here to anyone who was paying attention, that the temple of his body would be destroyed, but he would raise it up in three days. That's all it would take. That's as long as it would be. Jesus records uh, John records an afterthought here that it was only after Jesus's resurrection that his disciples, Present with Jesus this day in the temple would remember this fact, that it would only be three days until he rose from the dead. In this moment, they forgot, and Mark's gospel tells us that when Jesus was arrested, they all flee out of fear. And when the women who first witnessed Jesus' resurrection go and tell the disciples, they don't believe them at first. But right here, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is laying out, albeit in a veiled way, that his death would not last forever. And in fact, everybody should keep their eyes open for three days after that. As noted by one biblical scholar, not only was Jesus making a declaration of his death and resurrection, but he was also making another kind of declaration. Even with the predecessor for the temple, the tabernacle, It was always supposed to house the presence and glory of God. And both the tabernacle and the temple, that was represented by what? Anybody remember? The Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant is what was supposed to represent the presence and glory of God. But what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Indiana Jones would have you believe it was in Egypt, but that's disproven by the Bible itself. The last reference we have in Scripture of the Ark of the Covenant is in 2 Chronicles 35. Forty years after that is when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and sacked the temple. Interestingly enough, no mention is made in Scripture as to what happened to the Ark of the Covenant at that point. Numerous theories abound, ranging from the Babylonians actually destroyed it, to the prophet Jeremiah having hidden it before the Babylonians arrived, to it being held in a church in Ethiopia, to it being hidden at Mount Nebo, and even Ireland. But none of these claims have been substantiated. Interestingly, the same writer of this gospel, John, in his book of Revelation, sees the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. But it's most likely not the same one Moses constructed. The writer of Hebrews says that everything Moses constructed was a copy of the heavenly version. So they're not the same things. So what happened to what was supposed to represent the glory and presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant? No one knows. And that's the point. Why? Because here in this morning's passage, by Jesus referring to his body as the temple, what is he also referring to? He's also referring to his body as what now is holding the glory and presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant mysteriously disappeared around the time of the Babylonian invasion because it was supposed to. No temple that followed Solomon's temple, including Herod's temple, would ever again house the very presence of God until the one who truly embodied it would cross over the temple's threshold and then the presence of God would be in the temple. So again, if anyone was paying any attention, they would have understood Jesus making this reference to himself as his body, himself, now holding the presence and glory of God. This experience marked the beginning of the movement that was Jesus' ministry. Here's why, verses 23 through 25. I'm going to round out the chapter this morning. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast... Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Before this event, it was really only Jesus' disciples who believed in Jesus as the Messiah and God and put their faith in him uh, as the prophesied deliverer. But as we read in verse 23 now, as it's Passover and Jesus was apparently performing other miracles in addition to his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, turning the water into wine, we're starting to see the movement of many people putting their faith in Jesus as the prophesied deliverer. Seeing as these were new believers, however, Jesus didn't think it was a good idea to reveal any more of who he really was at that point. Again, this shows us a certain order that God was holding to in order to reveal Jesus in increments and in an orderly and purposeful way. Everything God does is purposeful. We see this in his order of creation, the natural laws he left in place, and here in his revelation of the Messiah. If everything was revealed right away, the crowds, especially with it being Passover here, would be constantly trying to create a riot to install Jesus as king. And Jesus knew that wasn't the purpose for his first advent on earth. His first advent on earth was all about what he had just revealed about his body. His body would be destroyed and then he would raise it up again in three days. Here we see a general and somewhat large group of people put their faith in Jesus. Over the next three passages in John, however, we're going to see Jesus having individual and personal interactions with three different people. Starting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus next week. As verses 24 through 25 mention, Jesus had knowledge of what was going on in people's hearts, both in general, as illustrated by the group of people who put their faith in him, and in individuals' hearts, as will be illustrated for the coming month. He not only had knowledge of the sin and misunderstanding in people's hearts, but like we talked about a few Sundays ago, Jesus, as God, also had a knowledge of every single thing. about a person. As Psalm 139 tells us, Jesus as God knows every thought we think, everything we say before we say it, knows our physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual selves even better than we do, thinks about us more than the number of grains of sand on a seashore, and knows that the Father has every moment of our lives written down before he ever uttered the words, let there be light. God knows each and every one of us perfectly. And as we'll see over the coming month, Jesus knows the exact and perfect way to lead us as individuals to faith in him. As noted by one biblical scholar, we'll see that with Jesus' conversation with a Jewish scholar named Nicodemus, a half-Jewish Samaritan woman, and a full-blooded Gentile nobleman. He knew the exact conversation to have with them where they, where they were in their lives in order for them to put their faith in him. Sometimes it takes a simple miracle to move someone to put their faith in Jesus. God showing up at the exact right time and with exactly what's needed. Sometimes it takes a conversation with a follower of Jesus to move someone. Sometimes multiple people will put their faith in Jesus at the same time like a Christian stadium event, and sometimes it's just a one-on-one conversation. Because God knows you so well, he knows exactly how to reach you. And since he's the one who created you, he's the one who knows you perfectly. His plan is the one that dictates our individual lives. It's his plan of salvation, and he's the one who's going to save you. He knows perfectly how and when to lead you to himself. It's going to look different for everyone. It's going to be different timing and it's going to be different circumstances. But rest assured, when God moves in your heart for you to put your faith in Jesus, it's His perfect timing and His perfect circumstances. And it's going to be the same for your loved ones. We can trust Him. That gives us an overwhelming sense of peace. God's response may not be what we expect or even want, like Jesus' response to the religious authorities. They thought they had an inkling as to how Jesus would respond. But God uses that opportunity to reveal something so completely shocking that the religious authorities had no clue what to make of it. And God may be using something in your life and in your life circumstances to reveal something about him or a lesson he wants to teach you that is completely outside of what you were anticipating. You may have gone through or are currently going through a life event that came as a complete surprise to you. That's okay. You want to know why? Because God is still in control. And that's his plan. We need to always be ready to completely change course, if necessary, and do what God wants. This is why we need to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit and his leading. I mentioned earlier in our worship time that as soon as we repent of our sin and come to God and say, I know Jesus is the only way for me to be able to be in heaven with you for eternity. Come be my savior. Come be my king. When we do that, the Holy Spirit immediately comes in and dwells us. And he moves in us. He gives us the guidance we need. He gives us the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that we need, right? The fruits of the Spirit. He gives us the wisdom that we need, the courage that we need to face any and every life circumstance. But this is why we need to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit's movement and spending time with God every day in prayer and in his word. He may be trying to get your attention, He may be trying to lead you to do something that's not even on your radar, but he's leading you to do it anyway. Stick as close as you can to God so that he can easily turn your direction to be best used by him. If something comes as a surprise, instead of shake our fist at God, instead seek God and what he may be growing in you, what he may be teaching you, what he may be revealing to you, and what he may be leading you to do in connection with that surprise. In speaking about trials and persecution and heartbreak, the Apostle Peter writes something for us to all take to heart and keep close to our hearts as we go through life by walking with God and seeking what he's doing in and with our lives. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, uh, this is very strange, be very glad Be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. God still knows you perfectly. God still loves you perfectly. God still has his perfect plan. And God is growing you in his perfect timing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what Jesus' response reveals to us about who you are. We thank you that even right here, he was revealing that he would die. The body, the temple of his body, would be destroyed, but he would be raised again to life in three days. And Lord God, that is our only hope, that is our only foundation. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet made a decision to commit their lives to you and they think they're just good enough on their own, I pray that, they would, that you would lead them to make that decision right now. That they would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit just as those who have put their faith in Jesus already have. And those, And Lord, those of us who have accepted you as our King and Savior and have the Holy Spirit in our hearts growing us and stretching us and guiding us and empowering us, I pray that we would be as in tune to that Holy Spirit as possible, that when something arises that comes as a complete surprise to us, that the very first thing we do is to seek you and to seek what you may be doing through it and how you may be leading us. Because you may be leading us into a brand new season in our lives. You are a God who not only loves us, you not only saved us, but you are intimately acquainted with every aspect of our lives, moving us, leading us, guiding us. So, Lord, I pray that if anybody's here who they kind of let their relationship with you slide a little bit, I pray that they would come back to you today and they would get back into reading your word on a daily basis and get back to coming to church and get back to talking to you on a daily basis, that that uh, relationship with you would be rekindled and, and, and uh, have a new beginning. As we go downstairs now, Lord, to enjoy the food uh, that so many hardworking hands and love have been put into, I pray that you bless it to our bodies, that we may use it to the glory of your name, and I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as we